Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the Grizz Weekly Grind, a proud affiliate of the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm Pete Pranica, TV voice of the Memphis Grizzlies and host of the program. This is episode 11. Today, we introduce you to a new friend of the program, one of the most intriguing people that I have ever been around in any walk of life, in any profession, and that is Monty McCutcheon, Senior Vice President of Referee Operations, Development, and Training for the NBA. Uh, I've gotten to know Monty through working on the Officiating Advisory Council, and uh, he is doing a great job in terms of leading the referee staff through some very, very difficult times, including the Orlando bubble, and that will be a prime topic of our conversation that you will hear later on in the show. Uh, This will be part one of the conversation. Uh, Any conversation with Monty usually is a pretty long one because Monty is very well-spoken and uh, very thorough in his answers. So uh, we'll have that. So Monty McCutcheon is our friend of the program. We'll talk about that was the week that was. Grizzlies have played a couple of games since we last visited in Episode 10, both of them losses, unfortunately, for the Grizzlies. And we'll have a handful of PD's points to talk about as well. That's what we've got on deck today in Episode 11 of the Grizz Weekly Grind, which is being brought to you today by the Hoop City Basketball Club. Since 2005, their mission has been to assist young student-athletes in grades 1 through 12 in developing a strong work ethic with discipline, responsibility, and accountability. Hoop City has helped young men be great on the court and in the community, and their alumni include major college and NBA players. For more information on how to become part of this great sports and character-building club, log on to HoopCityBC.com. You can also follow them on Twitter at HoopCityBC. As they say, it's in our blood, it's who we are in Hoop City. Coming soon is Spring League with tryouts in late February, and we will share those details when we get them from Hoop City, B.C. All right, Grizzlies, since we last visited O and 2 let's get to That Was, the week that was. Last Thursday, Grizzlies at home to take on the Houston Rockets. Uh, good first quarter. 27-27 as we head to the second quarter, but the second quarter is when the roof started to fall in on the Memphis Grizzlies. Now, Houston was on the second night of a back-to-back. They were coming off their worst offensive performance of the season the night before in Oklahoma City and losing that basketball game. John Wall sat, and uh, Victor Oladipo played in the Oklahoma City game. For the Memphis game, their roles were flip-flopped, and so John Wall played and Victor Oladipo sat. Oladipo rehabbing a quad injury. John Wall coming back from the Achilles injury. And uh, we've always known that Eric Gordon was a dangerous scorer, and both Gordon and Wall went for 20-plus. John Wall with 22, Eric Gordon with 20. They combined to go 6 of 16 from 3 and 10 of 11 from the free throw line. They were the guys who were the big issue for the Memphis Grizzlies. But, you know, anytime you play the Houston Rockets, whether or not they have James Harden, which, of course, of course, now they don't because he's with the Brooklyn Nets, uh, you have to deal with the three-point line. And the Grizzlies did not do a good job of defending the three-point line. Houston goes off for 19 threes, and they shoot a high percentage. I mean, they shot 42%, 19 to 45 for 42%. Grizzlies shot a reasonable percentage, but just 12 made threes. So 12 of 35 for the Grizzlies. So you're minus seven. So you're basically down 21 points, and the Grizzlies end up losing the ballgame 115 to 103. Uh, Grayson Allen, Jonas Valanciunas both missed that game with health and safety protocols, so the Grizzlies were a little shorthanded. Uh, another great game from Desmond Bain, who continues to impress. The rookie out of TCU uh, is really good on both ends of the floor. At last check, uh, the Grizzlies had their third-best defensive rating when he was on the floor. 
He is one of those guys who can play both ends of the floor. He's physical. He's smart. He's intelligent. He knows his game really well. When the Grizzlies got him, they figured, okay, good three-point shooter. That's why we got him. Well, there's a lot more to Desmond Bain's game than simply three-point shooting, and uh, and he certainly showed that. Another great effort from the bench as well, but the Grizzlies fall to go to 9-8 and eight last Thursday night, falling to the Rockets 115-103. to 103. Now let's flash forward ahead to Saturday. Grizzlies go down to New Orleans where they had lost three straight and um, Pelicans were coming off a one-point victory over the Indiana Pacers, and they were at total full strength, and they got great performance from their starters, which they have to because the New Orleans bench is the worst in the league, at least in terms of points per game, and they got very, very little from their bench. And frankly, Stan Van Gundy doesn't give a whole lot of minutes out to his bench, but then again, when you have Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson, Stephen Adams, Eric Bledsoe, and Lonzo Ball, you probably don't need a lot of minutes from your bench. Uh, Ingram was sensational. Uh, he went for a double-double, 27 points and 12 rebounds. What kills you about this game is that the Grizzlies did have a double-digit lead, could not protect it. Grizzlies actually led entering the fourth quarter, albeit by just one point, but they were outscored 28-18 in the fourth quarter, could not make a three in the fourth and final quarter. And again, Grizzlies come up on the short end of the score, 118 to 109, and also come up on the short end of the three-point shooting, which we'll deal with a little bit later in Petey's points. Bright spot for the Grizzlies in this game. Bright spots, plural. Uh, they got Grayson Allen back from health and safety protocols, and and Grayson played well off the bench, finished with eight points, uh, two of five from three, played 22 minutes in the ball game, but the big News for the Grizzlies was the return of Jonas Valanciunas. And interestingly enough, Taylor Jenkins decided he would not start Jonas, that he would start Gorgie Jang along with Xavier Tillman in the front court, along with Kyle Anderson. And Valanciunas comes in and and just puts together a masterful first quarter, 13 points coming off the bench, finished with 23 and 7 rebounds, hyper-efficient from Jonas, who had had struggles earlier in the season converting around the bucket. He goes 9 of 11, 2 of 2 from 3, and a perfect 3 of 3 from the free throw line. Free throw line and, and shots around the goal, it, 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 you know, Jonas hadn't been converting them at his normal rate, but boy, he certainly did on Saturday night. But the problem is, you got Brandon Ingram, and I think, I think Brevin Knight made one of the better points he's made in, in, a, in a while, and he makes a lot of them. Um, he said, you know, Brandon Ingram really reminds him of a slightly shorter Kevin Durant. Both long, rangy, can shoot, put it on the floor. And, and Ingram goes for 27 points and didn't go to the free throw line at all. And not everything from him was from the perimeter, although he did make five threes. But uh, Brandon Ingram was just fantastic. And Zion Williamson, uh, the beneficiary of getting 11 free throw attempts, finishes with 29 points, only four rebounds for him. Eric Bledsoe, gigantic in the fourth quarter, 21 for the game for him. And the Grizzlies drop it 118 to 109. They have now lost two in a row. They are at 500 at 9 and 9 as we visit with you today. So that was the week that was for the Memphis Grizzlies, 0 and 2 since our last visit. Now, as far as a couple of Petey's points, let's get right to it. Uh, the Grizzlies bench continues to kill it. I mean, the Grizzlies bench has been fantastic they're the, they're the number one bench in the NBA and not simply in terms of point production but they're shooting better than any other bench in the league they're assisting better than most benches in the NBA they're racking up more steals than anybody else in the NBA they they have done a great job on both ends of the floor 
five consecutive games of 50 or more points from the bench. In that streak, there have been two games with 60 or more points from the bench. In the last eight, Grizzlies have gotten 50, an average an average of 53 points per game from their bench. The bench is shooting 52% and 47% from three. That's amazing. That, that, that is so fantastic for the Grizzlies, and that is one of the things that Taylor Jenkins and his staff had said, look, we are going to need to rely on our depth, particularly without Justice Winslow, without Jaron Jackson Jr., and obviously the Grizzlies had to rely on their bench even more so with Jonas Valanciunas not being available to them, Grayson Allen not being available to them, and they have come up big. The issue is that, yeah, the bench is killing it. The starters are not, and, and, and this is the issue for the Grizzlies, and a, a perfect Look at this. When you look at the last two games, I don't know if you're a big believer in plus minus. Sometimes it's a good barometer. Sometimes it's a bad barometer. But for purposes of this discussion, we're going to talk about plus minus for just a second. Okay. Grizzlies against the Houston Rockets. All five starters for the Grizzlies are minus 10 or more. John Morant's minus 32. Kyle Anderson, Dylan Brooks, both minus 29. Brandon Clark, minus 24. Five bench players saw the floor against the Houston Rockets. DeAnthony Melton, Gorgie Jang, Tyus Jones were all plus 20. Desmond Bain was a minus five. John Conchar was a plus nine. So all five starters in the Houston game are significantly minus. Three of the five bench players are significantly plus. And before you start yelling small sample size, let's look at the New Orleans game. New Orleans game. All five Grizzly starters, again, minus. Gorgie Jang, minus 13. John Morant, minus 25. Grizzlies bench wasn't quite as good against New Orleans. De'Anthony Melton, minus four. Everybody else, Valanciunas was, was level at, at zero. Desmond Bain, a plus one. Uh, Grace Nall and Tyus Jones, both a plus eight. So again, you have a situation where all five starters are on the bad side of plus minus and the vast majority, if not all of your bench players are on the positive side of the plus minus. So the bench has been great, which is a wonderful story and fantastic. Whatever nickname we come up with. I like the Hoopers, but that's just me because I came up with it, I think. Um, But the starters are are going to have to be, are going to have to be better. And one of the starters, and this is a nice segue to Petey's point number two, one of the starters who really did a good job, the two games in San Antonio, Kyle Anderson was fantastic, averaging 16.5 points in the two-game sweep of San Antonio. Uh, came up with, I think, one of his best games of the season in New Orleans. Uh, 21 points, four boards, four assists, two block shots, three of seven from three. Um, Kyle right now is averaging in double digits, which he never has in his entire career. The best year scoring-wise that Kyle had was a couple of years ago, the 18-19 season, his first with the Grizzlies. He averaged eight points per game that season. Um, Right now he's averaging 12.6. His shooting percentage is the lowest it's been since his rookie year when he only played 33 games for San Antonio. But the the bottom line is Kyle has never averaged more than six-and-a-half shots per game. He's averaging ten-and-a-half shots per game per game this year as a full-time starter. Last year was coming off the bench, uh, and it remains to be seen when Justice Winslow and Jaron Jackson Jr. come back what role uh, Kyle Anderson is going to have to play. But Kyle's having a career year. And for those of you who aren't aware, um, you know, Kyle had 
last year before before the bubble, and and really most of the time, I think when he was here in Memphis, he he just had a shoulder issue, and the the diagnosis proved to be fairly elusive, and ultimately it was decided to do a thoracic decompression procedure, which Markel Fultz, who had some very pronounced shooting issues with Philadelphia and with Orlando, uh, that was the same procedure that Markel Fultz had, and it allowed him to have a, a, a better and more natural shooting motion. And, you know, Kyle Anderson was feeling a little bit better going into last year, and then in the bubble his health was was even better than it had been because of a little bit more healing time, a little bit more rest time. And and Kyle Anderson even said before the start of the season that this is probably the most healthy uh, that he has been in quite some time. And health, obviously, you can do more things and do more things and do them better. But I think also there's a lot of confidence that flows from that, knowing that your body's not going to fail you, that, you know, when you go up to do something, whether it's to, to grab a rebound or, you know, reach your arm out to make a deflection or to rise up for a three-point shot, that if you're healthy and, you know, you're feeling good about yourself, there's a certain level of confidence that goes along with that. So Kyle Anderson, career year, fantastic stuff. Uh, I'm sure that he will continue to do that. He's already set a career high for the most three-pointers that he has made in a season. Um, I think the previous high for Kyle uh, was about 24 uh, three-pointers made in a season. He's already passed that. Uh, He had 24 three-pointers last year uh, for the Grizzlies, and he has 26 in 18 games. He had 24 in 67 games last year, 26 in 18 games this year, and shooting 35% from three uh, and averaging four three-point attempts per game. So, Uh, Fantastic for Kyle Anderson. Final thing, and I alluded to this in that was the week that was, uh, three-point issues for the Grizzlies continue. Uh, Grizzlies have done a decent job of making double-digit threes and shooting a reasonable percentage. fact of the matter is, where the three-point is killing them is on the defensive end. Grizzlies are 23rd in the league as, as we record this right now. They're minus almost two threes made per game. Doesn't sound like a lot, but... You know, you're still talking about six points. You're still talking about a couple of possessions and how many NBA games are within one, two, three possessions or come down into the clutch situation, final five minutes with a margin plus or minus five. What's even more disturbing is the defense against the three-pointer because, New Orleans, first of, well, first of all, you know, Houston hits 19, which they're certainly capable of doing that, but you're not going to win many games if the other team's hitting 19 threes. You know, tip your cap to the Rockets, true, uh, but the Grizzlies have to do a better job of defending the arc. New Orleans, you know, the Grizzlies minus 1.7, minus two threes made per game. New Orleans, uh, after the Grizzlies game, so it probably would have been even bigger, they're last in the league. They are being outscored by an average of four three-point makes per game, yet they outshot the Grizzlies. They made 15, Grizzlies made 13. Grizzlies opponents are shooting 38% from three. That is too high a percentage. Whether it's the Grizzlies doubling down and then it's such a long closeout to get out to the three-point line, to get out to a three-point shooter. I don't know if the Grizzlies have to change their defensive philosophy, but it's not sustainable to be giving up 19 threes a game. It's not sustainable to allow teams to shoot 38% from three. And you know both Houston 
and New Orleans shot high percentages from three. Houston shot 42%. Pelicans shot 46% from three. And, and they actually have backed away from their philosophy of, of, of chasing the long ball. They have gone more to a, a paint-heavy philosophy. Understand Van Gundy, but uh, they were certainly effective hitting the threes against the Grizzlies on Saturday night. So uh, those are my PD's points for today. And uh, as I promised, we have a new friend of the program, and um, he's a guy for whom I have immense respect. Monty McCutcheon, a fantastic official. And Byron Spruell in, in the league office decided that there needed to be some new leadership for the officiating staff. And Monty McCutcheon, at the time that he was pulled off the floor in order to work in the front office, essentially, of the NBA, was one of the very best officials that we have in our league. Uh, always a finals official, very well respected, uh, didn't have to hand out a lot of technical fouls, good communication skills with players. And Byron Spruell felt that, okay, this is something that we need to do. We, we need to get Monty into the front office because you have so many referees who have timed out because of age, because of health. Uh, you know, Bennett Salvatore retires because... He's at retirement age. Joey Crawford, his knees started to act up. And Joey was nearing retirement age. Steve Javi, his knees acting up. And so now he serves as a consultant to ABC and ESPN on NBA officiating. Uh, Gary Zielinski had uh, an injury issue. So he had to leave the floor. Um, you know, so many guys have had issues like Mark Wunderlich, who's also working uh, for the league right now. He had uh, some injury issues that kept him off the floor. And Mark Wunderlich was a finals-level official. So as a result, you have a lot of young officials coming up through the WNBA and the G League. And so how do you recruit these officials? How do you train these officials? How do you get these officials who uh, maybe have five, six years in the G League and get them up to NBA speed so that they can do a quality job of adjudicating NBA games. It's not an easy task, but I've been working with Monty on the Officiating Advisory Council along with other broadcasters, coaches, referees, and players. And even though you may not agree with every call that is made on the floor, and right now the NBA is probably about 95, 96 correct calls and no calls, um, whether you agree with the calls or not, I think NBA officiating is in a good place. There are a lot of young officials, so they're going to need a little bit more training. And uh, development and training and recruitment of new officials, part of the conversation that uh, I had with Monty McCutcheon, and we're going to share part one with you today. Today's friend of the program is Monty McCutcheon. I'm visiting with Monty McCutcheon, the Senior Vice President, Head of Referee Development and Training for the NBA. Uh, Monty, a longtime NBA referee, finals-level referee, one of the most respected referees we had in the league, and then moving to the league office. Monty, the pandemic has brought so many challenges in so many areas of the NBA and the world. What are some of the big challenges that you and your staff face with the pandemic here in 2020 and 2021? Well, I think, as most people, the approach is as important as the work. And we've taken on the approach and the viewpoint, the philosophical viewpoint, that we're going to embrace instead of endure. 
and that we're going to use this as an opportunity for reflection, both as a department and individually about how we can build community and build a sense of collective purpose uh, with one another, both so that we can serve the NBA, which is our role as officials is to serve the game, serve the franchises and serve the players and coaches and the various teams uh, so that their talents and their, that an environment is created so that their talents can be exposed. I think when you understand the core value and the core purpose of your group, which is servitude, then it allows you to lay out a proper plan about how to overcome the obstacles. Every year has its own set of obstacles. Clearly 2020 and now on into 2021 has presented us with unprecedented obstacles, but that's no different than the rest of the world is facing. Ours happens to have a certain particular set of obstacles that we have to overcome, but the fact remains is, is that if we um, divide, if we break down, if we bicker, if we do all the things that, that lead to um, discord, then you can expect a result that is very similar to those kinds of approaches. We've tried to take a, uh, an opposite approach. This is an opportunity for us to grow. This is an opportunity for individuals, both within the department and even out on the floor to, to gain new experiences, to take on new responsibilities. And we're hoping that people measure up to those moments, both internally and externally. Monty, one of the things that has changed in referee operations is now because teams might be playing consecutive games against the same team, you're seeing the same crew or maybe the same crew chief to, to minimize travel. Is that strictly a response to, to COVID-19? Yeah, I think that in particular, you know, historically, we would want a certain amount of space between the decisions that NBA referees make and the, the teams that those decisions impact so that everyone can move forward, let some of the disagreements or, or grist that occurs between, um, you know, serving and adjudicating the game and playing the game passionately with a desired outcome. You know, we've, we've traditionally allowed for a certain amount of time to, to pass uh, before we reintegrated a set of officials to a franchise. Uh, I think that health and safety, not I think, I know that health and safety must take precedent this year. That is for the good of everybody. That's the good of the teams, the individuals, the players who are, are, are you know, basically our product. They, they're the ones that we all love to see talents excel and, and the, the sense of competition is what we at the NBA embrace. And I think that when we want to make sure that everyone is safe, but it doesn't just extend that safety to referees and players and coaches, but all kidding aside, the people who get the game out to to our public, you, the, the people who work in the arenas. And we want safety for everyone that has a tie to the NBA. And one of the ways that we know we can do that is by limiting, not, a, not eliminating, but limiting the amount of travel uh, that our referees are doing. We've cut it significantly. There's still a significant amount of travel that the NBA referees are going to have to, you know, embrace and, and, and be a part of and be good stewards words about health. Um, but that being said, we are making choices that put safety and health for the individuals that are tied to the NBA first. You had mentioned the need for community and embracing the situation. Our referees live all over the country, get together for meetings, maybe a couple of times a year. Some of them play golf down in Georgia during the off season, but you had the vast majority of your staff in the bubble in Orlando. 
was creating community there, were there anything specific that you did or was it just organic and Scott Foster's pickleball games then? And have you noticed an uptick in the overall esprit de corps of the refereeing staff in the wake of being together in Orlando? Yeah, it was, that was exactly where we sort of made the decision that we had two choices. We could try to endure this time away from our families. You know, our referees that made it through through the finals last year were in bubble over 90 days, as was I there the whole time. And we, we talked about it and we said, if we try to endure this, it's going to be, you know, it's just going to be an, an interminable amount of time. But if you embrace it, then you can build relationships that you haven't had the opportunity to enjoy in the past, both with individuals of the refereeing staff, but seeing Richard Jefferson, you know, at the pickleball courts and seeing other announcers and writers. And you, you learn to see coaches and franchises and everyone had such a great spirit about it that, yeah, we didn't agree with that call last night, but no one carried it over. I was so proud of our referees. I was proud of our players and coaches as I usually am. I love our league. I love, I think we have the best people in our league as well as the best basketball minds in our leagues, as well as playing. And that includes the WNBA as well and the G League and now the BAL. And I think that when you have the best people, embracing a situation becomes easy because now you're looking at ways, how can I build the relationship today? How can I contribute to the greater good? Uh, we definitely bonded. Um, the pickleball became quite the story and rightfully so. It really did give both mind and body an opportunity um, to, to take a respite to seek a bastion of refuge. But there were other many things. Scott Twardowski is a uh, really accomplished amateur photographer and I have a love for photography. And so we both brought cameras down there and enjoyed um, the, the small amounts of, of free time we had. You could see both of us. Kevin Scott caught monster bass out in the middle of the lake there that we have great pictures of. Um, social justice was a big part of the referees summer. Uh, they organized a walk uh, at, in and around the same time that, that Milwaukee uh, took the stand that they did and, and put a priority on social justice as we should. And our referees measured up to that moment of, of recognizing uh, a need for priority in our lives. And it was a really enriching and rewarding experience the bubble was. And it was also a sacrifice to be away from our families. But when you do embrace, that sacrifice comes with fruit at the end of the hard labor. And we all felt that, I believe. And we're visiting with Monty McCutcheon, Senior Vice President, the Head of Referee Development and Training for the NBA. Monty, you talked about good people and, and our officiating staff is populated with nothing but good people. It, people time out. Uh, in terms of their career, their health. Uh, we've had referees that, as you well know, have had health issues, yeah. could not continue. Gary Zielinski had to come off the floor. He's now part uh, of your training and development group. Um, how do you go about finding more good people as referees either have to move, the, move off the floor because of injury or age or just deciding to go into retirement? Well, I think one of the big misconceptions that has some truth in its historical roots is that it's just, you know, who, you know, 
and nothing could be further from the truth. I think 35, 40 years ago, there was some similarity. There was no internet. How do you know or even think to become an NBA referee 35 years ago? You know, you you happenstance to meet Hubert Evans or Joey Crawford or uh, Jake O'Donnell or Earl Strom, and, and you would get an opportunity to be seen by someone or Daryl Garrettson. But we had to evolve with the times. And people that held these positions prior to me helped Mike Bannum, Bob Delaney, put in a, a really great pipeline system. So we have a scouting department um, that has three scouts in it. They are across the nation. We have one on the West Coast and two on the East Coast. They go and see over 3,000 college and high school officials uh, through the course of the season, working high school and college basketball uh, or any other league that they may see a, a talented young referee. We're expanding that to now uh, we have some, a young referee from South Korea in our referee development program, which is within the NBA. And we're expanding out to more international scouting. Uh, we have a scout from, I mean, we have a referee that flew from Australia uh, last year, I believe, maybe two years ago, uh, a young woman who flew all the way from Australia for our national tryout camp, and she's in our pipeline. And out of those 3,000 officials, we monitor the top 100, and then we invite them to a grassroots camp run by George Tolliver. And George Tolliver does an enormously important role for us, and he does it with incredible excellence, uh, in which he drives our pipeline. George ran our G League for the officials for in excess of a decade, and now he's moved into this role because we find both value in George, but because we know he's so good at what he does, but also value in this set of camps that goes from grassroots to mid-level to elite. So out of those 100 officials, out of those 3,000 officials that get you know narrowed down to 100, that get narrowed down to uh, an elite camp that provides 48 officials, we might hire 10 to 12 as a round number uh, that get into our G League. So it's a vetted process. By the time you are an NBA referee, you have made it through a gauntlet of being vetted and it comes from anywhere and everywhere i don't care if you're five foot two i don't care if you're six foot nine if you can process plays and you can apply the teaching that we do and you can show that you are capable man or woman tall or short uh west coast east coast africa or australia we hope to find you and we hope to provide you the opportunity to serve the nba as you recruit these officials, what are the checkpoints that you are looking for? Obviously, the ability to make correct calls, to be in the proper position, to process information, to know the rules backwards and forwards. What are, what are the qualities that you're looking for when you are scouting these young referees? Well, you want a combination, and I have said this publicly before, but you want a combination of strength without arrogance and humility without weakness. And if you can teach and find that in people, people who are willing to run the game, the game is run by officials. It is played and coached by others. But we have to provide consistent parameters in which everyone knows what to coach. Every player then expects that if I do this, it's clear and transparent what should be called. Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect. We, you know, officials make mistakes. But I want to see a referee that can provide strength without arrogance if a game is getting rough can they have the strength to and the courage to step in and adjudicate that roughness back to uh what is an acceptable aggressiveness because there is a difference between aggressive and rough 
And I want to see a, co a referee that can deal with a myriad of tools with um, conflict. Can they apply technical fouls when appropriate? Can they avoid technical fouls when appropriate with other tools? Uh, diverting conversation, listening, admitting when they're, they're humble enough to admit when they're wrong. Uh, and then when you see some of those attributes, then we find out whether application is within their talent skills set. And if they can apply the teaching of those that have gone on and the wisdom that has gone on before them, then you have a combination of someone who has great resolve. They have the appropriate amount of firmness. They've already exhibited the humility and the strength and courage that we would expect. And then we see whether they can process the plays at the speed. And that's why we have three different levels of play just to get them to the G League. Because speed and size in combination is what dictates level. Bigger, faster players, the higher you go. And can you process those bigger, faster players above the rim, both vertical and horizontal? When we start out refereeing, Pete, it's a very horizontal game that we referee. That was the game you and I played, Pete, a very <laughs> horizontal game. <laughs> and that drove us to refereeing and announcing. And yet, as you advance in yourself as a referee, you start to recognize that you now have to referee horizontally and vertically with bigger, stronger players. I mean, think about the size of, of LeBron James, you know, to take one of our more notable players and at six, eight and however, you know, many pounds he is. I know there's great mystery about that, but even at Memphis, you have a skill set, Dylan Brooks, you know, and how strong he is uh, as well as that combination of, of speed. And when you start to combine that referees expose themselves in the pipeline as to whether they're capable of handling that advancement. Some do, some do not. And that's why we're comfortable with the vetting process by the time they get to the G League and then on to the NBA. Just as a side note, the G League, about 25% make it to the NBA. So there is a strong, a strong vetting process that you must prove excellence. That's part one of our conversation with Monty McCutcheon in Referee Operations, Senior Vice President of the NBA. Uh, what is coming up for the Memphis Grizzlies? Well, they have got a Monday night game at home against Toronto, and then a couple nights later at home to Charlotte, and then they go west for two to the Lakers and then to the Sacramento Kings before returning home for a four-game homestand, including a game that was added to the schedule, Oklahoma City visiting on February the 17th. That is episode 11 of the Grizz Weekly Grind. It has been brought to you by the Youth Athletic Foundation. Its mission is to assist student-athletes in developing a strong work ethic through discipline, responsibility, and accountability. Their goal, to help youngsters understand the importance of working hard to be the best they can be, whether it be on the court or in the classroom or in the community. The YAF has donated millions of dollars to charities, families, local high schools, and youth sports programs. So we thank the Youth Athletic Foundation, also the Hoop City Basketball Club, and our very special thanks to Monty McCutcheon for visiting with us today. That does it for Episode 11 of the Grizz Weekly Grind. I'm Pete Pranica. Thanks so much for listening to the Grizz Weekly Grind, a proud affiliate of the Basketball Podcast Network.